Well, you know why. Yeah, tell us why. The reason is we only live once. Mm -hmm. There's no dress rehearsals in life. It's one take. This is it. So if you don't make the best of it, when you're 90 and sitting in a wheelchair, you're going to have a lot of regrets. So you better do everything you want to. The Queen of Iran, Seinfeld, figure skating, days of our lives, and so much more on this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Hi friends, it's Steve, and it is so good to be here with you for episode number 84, where I get the privilege of bringing to you a cultural icon, the one and only Rosie Malik Yonin. Rosie is an established actor in Hollywood, and she's also the author of one of the most well-known books on the Assyrian genocide called The Crimson Field. In December of 2017, I reached out to Rosie to let her know that I'd be starting a new podcast. She quickly gave me her information, was extremely supportive, and even gave me tips on how to do a good interview. Nearly two years later, I finally got the chance to connect with her in person, and let me tell you, it was an unforgettable experience. Rosie brings a unique and diverse perspective, not just on what it means to be an Assyrian, but also what it means to be a good human. Listening to her share stories about her upbringing in Iran, the time that she ran away from home, how she ended up on an AT&T commercial, and how she presented the Assyrian plight to Congress, easily ranks as one of my favorite experiences being a part of the Assyrian podcast. And I'm so thankful that we get to hear from Rosie and get to know her in the Assyrian podcast way. So get out your childhood dreams and prepare to meet someone who's always pursued and executed on her aspirations. But first, remember to rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcast. We appreciate your feedback and we'd love to hear from you, our dear listeners. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Calgaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Calgaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. Support for this episode is also brought to you by John Oshana. John is a real estate professional in Arizona and California. Whether you're thinking about buying or selling real estate in Arizona or California, put John's proven track record to work. John's focus is on residential, multi-units, and commercial properties. Check John out on Facebook.com slash John O'Shauna Realtor or, or on Instagram at John.O'Shauna. Contact him today at 209-968-9519. And now, here is the one and only Rosie Malik Yonin. I actually want to begin by saying lights, camera, action. <laughs> there you go. Now, does Perfect. that make you feel more comfortable based uh, on 
other work you've done? No, it's all equal. Okay. I mean, I, I feel confident in all the things that I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're so excited. You know, we've talked in the past for a couple of years now, or even before I began the podcast, I reached out to you. Um, and I remember you, you gave me like all these tips on if I'm going to do an interview, how I should prepare for the interview and all of that. And so now, over a year later, I get to have you on the show. Yay. So thank you so much for making the time. My pleasure. I just want to open with, tell us about the name, Rosie Malik Yonan. Well, the name Malik Yonan is, is a very old name. Malik is actually a title. There were several Malik families uh, throughout the Assyrian history, and it's a title that's given to certain families by the patriarch, and they... They were almost like little rulers of their own little tribes. And, um, of course, the Malagionans were, were just like that. They originated from Drilu. And at some point um, after they were being attacked, Assyrians in that region were being attacked, they migrated, they brought their entire Malagionan tribe to Guitapa in Iran. And um, they settled in Guitapa. And Malik Yonan, who was the main Malik of our tribe, he built a Marzaya church. Wow. And he brought with him a stone from the original Marzaya church from Jilu. And he used that as the cornerstone for the church he built in Gyutapa. Are those churches still there? Marzaya church, both of them in Jilu and the one in Gyutapa are still there. And Malikyonan's son, Mirza David Malikyonan, became the governor of Gutapa for 40 years. That's, that's amazing. And you, uh, your family line like traces back 11 centuries. It goes back to 11 centuries. And when I wrote my book, a lot of people found me. They said, oh, wait, this is our name too. So a lot of family members that I wasn't quite aware of reached out to me from all parts of the world and it was fabulous to, to connect with all these people. Yeah, Yonin's a typical last name in the Assyrian. Well, Yonin was actually in those days, you know, they used a first name, so it was a first name and Malik was the title, so Malik Yonin. Gotcha. And then at some point it just became the the last name. But some family members still use Malik and some of them spell it differently. You know, I spell M-A-L-E-K and some spell M-A-L-I-C-K. So, and in Assyrian, it, it's spelled the same way. Right, yeah. But when I you mean, migrate to a Western country, you yeah. know, they'll ask you and they'll phonetically spell it out, so. Right, and then the, the spelling is different and people just want to be able to say it in a way that they can understand. So right. you've got obviously lots of notable history in your family tree, and it would be awesome to do one whole episode dedicated to a lot of the people who have done some really notable things. But instead, I wanted to focus on your immediate family. Your dad, George Malik Yonin, he was an international lawyer in Iran. He was a very well-respected, well-known lawyer there. Yes. And then he was also an amazing athlete. Tell us about your dad and him, his work and then upbringing. Well, his work as an attorney made a huge difference in the Assyrian history. He procured a seat for Assyrians 
in the Iranian parliament. Up until then, Assyrians had no representation. There were two seats for minor minority Christians, but both of those were taken by Armenians. So my dad met with the late Shah of Iran, and he negotiated a seat for us. And the Shah told him at the time, well, we already have two seats for the Christians. Why don't we take one away from the Armenians and give it to, to the Assyrians? And my father said, no, they are larger in number, so let them keep their two seats, give us a separate seat. So he was able to change the history of Assyrians. By doing this, he gave a voice to Assyrians. Suddenly now Assyrians were not just an unknown Christian minority, but they were an accepted part of society. They had a seat in parliament. How did your dad build that relationship with the Shah? Um, my father was very influential because of his fairness. He was a very fair man. Um, when he represented Assyrians, most of the time, he, it was all pro bono, unless he was dealing with a big corporation. So he was very well known and respected in the community. And he built a lot of relationships outside of his community things that would benefit the community directly. So, for example, if somebody was in trouble, he was the first go-to person. You know, get them out of trouble, mm -hmm. get them out of whether they were arrested or whatever the situation was. And it was very easy to get people arrested in Iran at that time. Um, poets would get arrested for writing the wrong material that was not acceptable by the government. And my father would was the first person that would be contacted. Our relative, our husband, or somebody has been arrested, So please. he was entrenched in the Assyrian community, but also doing this government attorney work. Right. And also, he was the attorney for the American embassy. So he, he kind of spread his, his knowledge and his contacts throughout all the communities that, that were in Iran at the time. And he came to the U.S. for college for to get his law degree. Yes. And then he went back. And we went back. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, really interesting, too. That was my mom's doing. My mom knew my her mother's life was coming to an end. And so she wanted to be with her mother. Her mother was in San Francisco at the time. So my father said, fine, we'll move the whole family. So we all moved. But by then, my dad was already an attorney in, in Iran. He already had his law degree. Oh, he already had okay. a practice. So we came here, and he went back to law school here to get his law degree from Golden Gate Law School. And then uh, after a while, we, we returned back to Iran, and my dad picked up his practice there. Sounds like a real go-getter kind of guy. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. He worked tirelessly. I mean, his days were like 18-hour days. But the one thing he always made a point of doing is having dinner with his family. Mm. No matter what time it was, the family, the four of us, my parents, me, my sister, we sat around the table, and we were a family. He made sure that there was time for us on weekends, well, there, it was just one day off in Iran Fridays. 
the family was together. They really only had one day off, huh? They only had one day off. And Friday? Yeah. And it was Friday. Oh, okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And your mom, Lita, sounds like she was the perfect mate for him. She was the perfect mate for him, and she did what my dad did, but for the women in Iran. She created an Assyrian organization, which she headed. The organization was uh, directly tied to the main organization that was headed by the queen at the time, Queen Farah. And she used to get invited to go to all kinds of events, and she made sure that she gave Assyrian women a voice mm -hmm. to be recognized. And Queen Farah was also wanting to give women in general and in Iran a, a new voice. Oh, absolutely. So you, her mom and you would have been very close on all of that. Yes, absolutely. The other thing as I was researching you that stood out to me is at age four, your parents signed you up for piano lessons with this lady named Tanya Ashot Haratun. I can't even say Tanya that. Tanya Ashot Haratunian. <laughs> and that woman is a like renowned pianist, like yes. one of the best in the world. So you're four years old and you're getting lessons from her. Yes. Tell me about like your, did your parents have connections? How were you able to get any of that set up? Well, um, my mom loved music. She absolutely loved music, all kinds of music. She would listen to opera. She would listen to Assyrian music. She would listen to anything, anything she can find, classical music. So she had this hunger for, for culture and music. So it was just natural to, you know, not only piano, but I took ballet, <laughs> took piano. And she would do those things right alongside me. She took piano lessons with me. And when her friends would ask her, well, why are you wasting your time? And she would say, it's not a waste of time. This is so that if my daughter has a question, she doesn't have to wait until her next lesson. I can maybe help her. So she was very much involved in her children's lives. How were they able to get this connection with this world-renowned pianist? Well, my mom always looked for the best. And of course, you know, by word of mouth, you find the best. And she came to our house. I remember the very first day she came, uh, her and her husband, they were both pianists. And she came and she met with me. And I just fell in love with this woman. I mean, she, I wanted to be like her. And I was excelling at piano so rapidly, so rapidly. And um, one time I remember it was summer. It was really muggy, it was hot. And the keys on the piano were sticking. Mm. So when you would hit a key, it would just get stuck. And I didn't bother to tell my parents, could you please get the piano fixed? Instead, I relearned a new fingering for the piece I was playing by lifting the keys as I'm playing. So you never knew that a key was stuck because I was lifting them with my thumb as I'm playing. And so when Tanya came over and she asked me to play, and she was watching me from across the room. She always watched from across the room because she wanted my posture and everything to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And she was just shocked. She called her husband over. They always came together. She said, come see what she's doing. And they had me play the piece over again. And they said, this is amazing. You're, she doesn't miss a beat. And she's learned to lift the keys that are getting stuck. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, amazing how that 
that kind of disability on the piano not working correctly, that malfunction becomes... <laughs> yeah, to me it was, okay, so there's an obstacle. I, I got to fix this, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I can't fix the piano. So you played piano. What other arts were you? Um, ballet. Yep. And um, writing mm-hmm. at a very young age because the person that I love the most in my life my babysitter from the time I was born up to the age of five was my young uncle, Cyrus. And one day, Cyrus was going to leave to go to London to go to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts there. I was just heartbroken, and I thought he was abandoning me. And he said, no, I have a dream. And he was only like 17 years old. He said, I have a dream. I need to go to this special school I want to become a director, a filmmaker, and um, I'll see you again very soon. Well, I didn't see him for many years after that until I was in my 20s. But from that moment, this seed was planted in my head that I'm going to grow up and be just like my favorite uncle. That's kind of a very unique piece. People don't know that about you. And, And what I used to do is... Even before I can write, I would make up episodes for American shows that we would get in Iran. I would write episodes, and I would act them out, and I'd direct them. And later, when I started going to school, I would cast other kids in my productions. And every day, there was a new episode of something. Now, was your uncle um, on your mom's side or your dad's side? My dad's younger brother. Oh, interesting. So your dad was probably like super serious lawyer. Very. Oh, I see. And now your uncle is like an actor, eclectic, like... Director, filmmaker, yeah. And he was the one who would come to our house and just hang out. And, and you he... were in love. You were just like, I was he's just, amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. And he was the one who introduced me actually to classical music. He would play music and he would say this is Bach, this is Chopin, this is, you know, he really taught me a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. And then he just disappeared. So I was always chasing his dream, but his dream became my dream. And you took it pretty far. I took it pretty far, yes. And he's still in the UK? No, he passed away a few years ago. Yeah, he um, eventually moved to Paris and... I saw him one more time when I was in my 20s. I went to visit him in Paris. And um, he was very proud of what I had accomplished. I, I had sent him the first script I had written with a partner. And I, I sent it to him. And when I went to his apartment in Paris, I saw it was on his bookshelf. And I kind of looked at it. And he saw that I'm looking at it. And he didn't have to say anything. He just looked at me. and nodded and smiled and that was all all that i needed you know it said yeah you guys had a special connection we did we really did that's so cool it's amazing the roles of our aunts and uncles like the the influence they have on us yeah the other thing i think a lot of people don't know about you is your education Mm -hmm. so i'm just going to name some of the places but Cambridge Extension in Iran, Tehran Conservatory of Music, San Francisco Conservatory of Music, American Conservatory of Theater in San Francisco, American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and then you you have a bachelor's and a master's. Yes. No, well, no, I have a bachelor's of art and a bachelor's of music. Oh, okay, so two yeah, bachelors. Two bachelors. But when I look at all of that, I think, you know, 
this woman loves studying. She loves learning. She's intelligent. Tell us about that. I do love studying. I came to America when I was 17. I lived with, with an aunt, my mother's sister, for about a couple months. And I ran away from home. I didn't want to be there. It wasn't the kind of surroundings I was used to. Wait, you ran away from home. Yes. Tell us more about that. So I was in college, and um, I just didn't want to be there. You know, I wanted to be on my own. And where was this? Like... This was in San Francisco. Oh, okay. So I got in my car, and I drove off. I packed all my stuff, threw everything, boxes in the car, and I just left. Well, I didn't have much stuff, just some clothes. And I just left. And I slept in my car for a couple of weeks because I didn't know where to go, really. <laughs> but I, I was parking in the college parking. I would go to the gym every day and, you know, get prepared for classes, take a shower, whatever I needed to do. That You were just unsettled, unsettled. in that home life and you were after something different. I was after something different. And eventually my dad got a hold of a cousin he had and he said, go quick, find my daughter, get her settled. She needs a home. So, you know, his, his cousin came and found me and he had gotten me an apartment and, and that was it. From that moment on, I was like a kid in a candy store. There were so many classes I wanted to take, so many things I wanted to do, because it was all available. Nobody would censor me. Nobody would say, no, this is not appropriate for you, or that's not appropriate. I, I, I was just crazy about studying. I remember the first year in college, I was taking 28 units. That's that's unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah, the most I ever did was like, 19. <laughs> so I got called to my counselor's office and he said, it's just come to my attention. You, you're, this is too much. You can't do this. I said, but you don't understand. I come from a background that was school, 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 and nothing else but school. We started at eight in the morning till five in the afternoon. From there, I would go to the British embassy to study for my you know, Cambridge classes. And then there was piano classes. And then I, I don't know how not to study. And so he said, well, we're going to see how your classes go. If you're doing well in your classes, then you get to keep them. If not, you're going to have to drop half of them. Well, I got straight A's, and mm -hmm. <laughs> so it, it was fine. They let me. It sounds like kind of your, your classic story of your parents giving you this very regimented, teaching you all kinds of stuff, and so as soon as you could learn for yourself, you, you just went, went after it. I just wanted to learn more. Yeah. Um, one thing before we move into when you come to the United States and you get into acting, before we move into that, the Queen of Iran, uh, Queen Farah Pavlavi, yes. um, you did a command performance for her, piano. Well, it's an interesting story. I used to enter these piano competitions in Iran every year, and I would always win first place. Always, for like several years in a so row. So do you have a competitive spirit about yeah, you, Yeah, just Rosie? a little bit, just a tiny bit. <laughs> if we go play basketball right now, you're going to be like, no, I'm going I'm to give it my all. So. Yes. Okay, good. Um, yeah. So one year, the final year that I was in Iran, I walked into the auditorium and everyone's whispering. And I'm thinking, what are they talking about? Why are they looking at me and pointing? So I took my seat, waited for my name to be called, and somebody leaned over and said, well, you know you're not going to win first place this year. I said, why not? 
And they said, well, because the queen's niece is in the competition. Uh-oh. And she's going to win. And I, that just really irked me. And then I noticed that one of the judges was actually her private teacher as well. I thought, okay, so this is fixed. But I'm just going to do my best anyway. So, of course, she has to play first. She performed, and then I got up, I performed, and several other students in different categories performed. And sure enough, they handed me second place. I, I was very angry because I didn't think that was fair. How old were you at this time? I think I was about 15. Okay. 15 Just or 16. a fierce competition. Yeah. So I, I took my award and I walked out. And I was just furious. And she comes running after me. She stopped me and she said, I'm sorry, I'm, I want to apologize. I said, for what? She says, well, I won this competition because of my name, not because of my ability. You really m should have gotten mm -hmm. the first place. And I said, well, thank you for saying that. And we just kind of stood there looking at each other. And then she said, would you like to be my friend? <laughs> said, okay, fine, we'll be friends. Wow. So we became friends. We used to communicate by phone. And she said, well, um, I'd like you to come to my birthday party. I said, okay. And this is the queen's niece. The queen's niece. So a few days later, we had to do a, the winners, the first, second, third place winners in all these different categories of music, had to do a command performance for the queen. And we were all excited that she was going to be there. And I'm standing backstage waiting for my turn to go up, and I hear the stage manager saying to someone else, yes, her highness isn't here today. And that just <laughs> caught my attention. So he called my name. It was my turn. He kind of nudged me, which I didn't like being nudged. I come out on stage, and I look up in the box where she's supposed to be seated, and she's not there. So I close the lid of the piano, and I took the stairs on the side of the stage and walked down, went directly to my mom, and said, we're leaving. She says, what are you doing? I said, well, the queen invited me here for a command performance. What kind of command performance is this if she's not going to be here? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> my mom, terrified. You know, people get hanged for less than this Jeez. in this country. So we left. We left the next morning. I get summoned to the principal school. And you know how kids are when, you know, you're summoned. They go, ooh, you, you've done yeah, something. Busted. Yeah, busted. So I go into the office, and here's a man standing very properly dressed in a dark suit, and he's got a little box in his hand. And so I just stood there looking at him, and he said, you walked out of a performance yesterday. I said, the queen didn't show up to the performance yesterday. That's why I walked out. And he said, well, this is from... Her Highness. And I said, well, what is it? He says, you may open it. I opened it. It was a gold fountain pen. A Parker gold fountain pen that I still have. You still have it? I still okay, have it. And, and I said, so, okay, but she still should have been there. Thank her for me. And so I walked out. But why would you push back like that? Because I was annoyed. Mm -hmm. I took my performance seriously. This was serious to me, and I demanded that respect. And to me, it didn't matter if it was a queen or a king or a, just a normal person. 
you have to demand respect from people. And I learned that from my parents very early on. So the next day, the queen's niece calls me and she says, by the way, remember the birthday party I invited to? Well, it's at the palace. Could you come? We'll send a car. I said, okay. So I went and all the royals are present. And of course, the queen is there. And um, so, but she was like a normal kid, you know, let's go to my room. I want to show you my room. And we did all of that. And then after dinner, everyone's sitting in that main salon, the main room, you know, and um, they, her teacher was there, her music teacher, who was the judge from the competition. And she was asked to perform. And she took my hand and we stood in the middle of this room with all these eyes, you know, just throwing darts at me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she says, this is the person who should have won the competition. Wow. Talk and about high integrity. It, absolutely. And she says, at least today, she will play first. So she walked with me to the piano. What an what amazing relationship. Isn't that? And so I played my co command performance, and I got the applause that I deserved. And that was it. We never saw each other anymore. That was the last time. But that but, was a but wonderful that was, friendship. It was a wonderful friendship. You know, sometimes friendships are short-lived, but they're real. Yeah. You know, they mean something. It, I think we have a lot to learn from our you know, teenage self because now, you know, as adults, we, we wouldn't say to someone, would you like to be my friend? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but back then... But and, back then, you know, yeah. you're 14, 15, you're a teenager, of course, you know, that, that's how it was. Would you like to be friends? <laughs> right. Your family and that relationship with um, the Shah and the Queen and their niece, and tell us a little bit about your uh, Assyrian identity at that time being in this sort of Persian world in Iran? The Assyrian identity was extremely important for my family. At home, it was only Assyrian. Mm -hmm. If you spoke Farsi, if you spoke any other language, you would not get a response. Actually, my parents would get very upset. Mm -hmm. So in the house, it was Assyrian. Assyrian culture, Assyrian friends, everything Assyrian. And they understood that in the outside world, we have to deal with Iranians. We have to speak the language. We have to learn the language. So I actually grew up learning Assyrian, English, Farsi, and Armenian at the same time. Mm -hmm. So for me, Flipping from one language to, to the other was, was very simple. I would just go in and out of languages. But at home, everything was strictly Assyrian. Yeah. So though your dad was an attorney in the midst of this Persian world, he still was you know, proud, focused Assyrian. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Going to Assyrian churches, you know, my, my parents, my, my dad was Presbyterian and my mom was Catholic. And so we had to go to both churches. They, they legit took you to both churches? <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. I mean, I had to go to three masses each week. One, I, I grew up in a Catholic, uh, Italian Catholic school, so I had to go to mass there, and yeah. I had to go to my dad's wow. church and my mom's church. And it was, you know, we were Assyrian, and you can go to any church so you like. There's nonstop church for you. Nonstop like. church, yes. Well, that yes. was good, though, for maybe singing and stuff like that. <laughs> so the fact that your mom was Catholic and your dad was Presbyterian, 
and they were married. Yes. Was there any conversation or conflict or disagreements with any of that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But they both stuck to it. Your mom didn't say, oh, I'm married now. I need to become Presbyterian. No, no, no. It was very accepted in my family. And actually, what's beautiful about that is that they opened up these worlds to us Mm -hmm. rather than saying, no, this is what you have to do. No, it was these are the churches that we belong to, our families belong to. At some point, you'll get to choose what you want or you just choose all of them. It doesn't matter. And I grew up learning, it doesn't matter where I pray. God hears me anywhere. I can go to any church, and I've done that. I've, I've gone to all churches. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Intelligent family that just is open-minded and, and passionate about the arts and also education. And then you gave us a sneak peek of when you came to the States, you're in California, San Francisco, you want run away. Tell us about how do you even get started in the acting world? Well, as I said, I always wanted to do acting. I always knew that's the direction I would go. But for that moment, I was in the music world. I was a pianist, so I continued that. And then I started taking acting classes on the side without telling anyone. No one knew. No one knew that I was going to two schools at the same time. No one knew (laughs) I was living a double life. Mm -hmm. But I was good at both of them. And eventually, I just, I was leaning more into, you know, the acting world. And I allowed that to take over. So something drew you there. Obviously, you're doing these classes. You're falling more and more in love with acting. Yeah. But... So many people have that story. They're like, oh, I want to be an actor. I love acting or whatever. But for you, you like started in an AT&T commercial. You got on. Well, before um, doing all of that, I was studying. I was honing the craft. To me, it was just another art form. It's not like I knew someone who would just put me in front of a camera and say, okay, you know, give this kid a job. No, I really had to work my way up. I had to learn the ropes because there's two sides to it. There's show business. There's the show end of it and there's the business end of it. So you've got to learn both of them Mm -hmm. equally. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you make mistakes, you do things wrong, but you learn from them. And My parents taught me to never rely on anyone, to never ask for help, to figure it out yourself, just like I did with those sticking piano keys. I had to figure out myself how to make the piano work with those keys sticking. I had to make this work. And actually, someone at some point said, you know, you're related to somebody very big. And I said, yeah, but so I'm going to make it on my own. I want to be bigger than them. You know, they've probably earned their way. Mm-hmm. I have to earn my way. Yeah. So that's what I did. Yeah. Uh, you were auditioning all the time for different roles? I was auditioning, yeah. When I, I, was, I studied really well, I got my degrees. Then I started going out looking for agents, and I secured agents, and they started sending me out on calls. And I was just booking things left and right. And I remember I was still a student at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And part of our contract with the school was that we were not allowed to work in the industry. Because if we did, then we were considered professionals and shouldn't be in school if Mm -hmm. we are professionals. 
So I, I was in my first year, and I got called in to audition for, for the show um, Dynasty. Mm-hmm. And I booked it. And now I'm terrified that if I work on this show and if I'm seen by the faculty, they're going to kick me out of school. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, but this is what I'm out here for. And Dynasty was a super popular. It was super soap popular. Opera. Yeah, it was big at the time. So that you're not going to really not be seen, right? <laughs> yeah. Like someone's going to see you on there. Yeah, someone's going to see me. But also, that show got me my SAG card. And you need to get your Screen Actors Guild card to work in the industry. Someone has to want to give it to you. And and they don't just give it to you. They have to Taft-Hartley you. There's there's a whole technical way of doing it. And so they they put in the uh, application for me to get my SAG card. And I was just thrilled. And a few, maybe it was like a week later, I got booked to do the... uh, AT&T commercial Mm -hmm. and it was people of different nationalities speaking in different languages so when I first auditioned I used Farsi because they knew what Farsi was when I said Assyrian they kind of just looked at me (laughs) they didn't really know what I was saying but on the day of the shoot I switched it and I told um, the producer I said I'm I'm going to do it in Assyrian. And he said, he panicked. What is that? I said, it's it's a Middle Eastern language. It's one of the oldest existing languages. There are people everywhere that speak Assyrian all over the world. And reluctantly, he said, okay, fine, do it. And I ended up doing it in Assyrian. Yeah, I the fact that you were willing to jeopardize jeopardize that opportunity by switching the language up. Yeah, and I learned from that experience wherever I could put in Assyrian. Mm-hmm. If it was a Middle Eastern language they needed for anything, it was always Assyrian. Yeah. Anytime I had the opportunity, I would use Assyrian. Yeah. So when I think about your story, you've got, again, going back to this uncle who lit you up and got you excited, and then you come to the States, and you're in California, San Francisco, and like on the side, you're secretly taking these acting courses, and now you've got some opportunities coming your way. You know, no connections. This is Rosie like, oh, I'm packing my things. I'm going to do this on my own. Yeah. And you're also like learning the inside of Hollywood. You're learning what gets you the the driver's license to get called to these auditions you're getting agents yeah people i don't think understand the inside world of hollywood yeah and being able to land these roles can you tell us more about that you have to be level-headed if you're going to sustain a career in hollywood I never went after, oh, I want money out of this. I, you know, this is an opportunity to make a lot of money. No. For me, the craft of, of acting was what attracted me to it. I loved, I actually love theater more mm-hmm. than I love film because there's so much more that goes into it. The rehearsal periods are like six weeks and you're delving into these characters and you know you go so deep in these characters and it's not just the characters but what surrounds these characters if it's a period piece what year is this what's the politics of the era who were the artists of the time what music that people listen to 
What kind of hat would I wear if I lived in that period? I would always find a coin from the period and carry in my pocket. You know, so you really get into yeah. these these roles. You know, so uh, and and then when you're on stage, it's so immediate. The response is so immediate because if they don't like you, you will know. Mm-hmm. But film is different. Film is slightly different because there's a lot of waiting around and you finally get on the set and you just have time to hit your marks and say your lines and they'll do a few takes and then you move on to the next scene right you know because there's it's probably disjointed it's there's no- it is disjointed the scenes are shot out of order yeah you know nothing is in order but theater you're you're in the show you're in the presentation you're in the moment you have to be in the moment and you can't and sometimes things go wrong when you're on stage and you have to incorporate that you can't ignore it you know something falls take two yeah no no there isn't you know and, Mm -hmm. and things will go wrong you know someone will fall someone will trip someone will drop something Things can go wrong on Have stage. Have you ever fallen? Uh, no, I haven't fallen <laughs> uh, in on stage, but I did have a big accident on the set of a, a series that I was doing. I was supposed to be shot by my husband, uh-huh. and the police are at the door. I open the door, and he shoots me again from behind, and I'm supposed to fall forward onto Michael Chiklis. I don't know if you know him. Uh, anyway, he, he's a big actor. And so the director is like maybe 50 feet away with the camera. It's a long uh, shot. And he keeps moving me closer to the door jam. And so the last final take, I go forward as I'm being shot, and I hit my whole face oh, no. on the side of the door. Oh, no. And I remember at that moment, the pain was so excruciating. And I'm thinking, do I stop? Do I go on? And I thought, no, okay, well, I'm I'm injured anyway. Let me finish the scene. So I finished the scene and just like the last seconds, I couldn't tolerate because real blood was coming down. Mm -hmm. And I had, you know, makeup on to make me look like I'm bruised. So the real blood and all this makeup Uh. was all getting mixed up. And I Finally, I fell forward. <laughs> I literally fell forward. And Michael Chiklis picked me up. He's, she's injured. <laughs> Stop. Cut the scene. Cut the like, scene. This is yeah. real. This is real. Yeah. Wow. And it looked pretty bad. My eye was just really swollen. But it worked for the character for the remainder of the show. Hey, it's, a, it's a part of the deal, right? It's part of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you have other moments you want to share that memorable moments from your acting career? I think the one that stands out the most for me is when I auditioned for the film rendition. Mm-hmm. I, the, just the year before, I had done the congressional testimony. Mm-hmm. My book was already out. And this casting director that brought me in was a huge fan. And I auditioned for her. I read for her. And we got to talking. She just took me into, you know, so what have you been up to? And I started telling her about Congress and my book and all that. And this conversation lasted 45 minutes. Usually you're in and out three minutes, you know. And it lasted for a very long time. And then she thanked me, and I didn't hear from her for over a week. And I thought, okay, well, I gave it my best shot. And next thing I know, I'm being called in to now meet the director. So I walked in, and he gets up and shakes my hand. 
And he says, before you audition, do you mind telling me about Congress and why you went there and about your book? So I did all of that. I explained to him why we were there. I, I had gone to Congress and what my book was about. And I just got very emotional. I started yeah. crying. And immediately he led me into the scene. So I did the scene. And he said, do you realize you were playing with your ring? I said, no, I, I was so in the moment. I, I'm sorry. He goes, no, it was perfect. Okay. So then he asked for my autograph on a copy of my book. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. You are the one who's just won an Oscar mm -hmm. for your last term. You're asking me for an autograph? And he says, yes. So I gave him the autograph. And then I didn't hear from them for a while. I thought, okay, well, maybe I didn't get it. Next thing I know, I've booked this. And his assistant came to me and he said, you know, he really had to go to bat for you. I said, really? He says, yeah, New Line Cinema wanted a cast of all Oscar-winning actors. And the actress that they were going to take in this role was an Oscar nominee. But he really fought for you. He really wanted you. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. And this production was amazing because by the time I was done, everyone knew about Assyrians. Yeah. Everyone had a copy of my book. Mm -hmm. And I made sure I wore the Assyrian star around my neck throughout the production. Very cool. Very cool. We're going to talk about your work within the Assyrian community. Okay. I do want to ask a couple more questions. Sure. But I love I love that 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 people were noticing yeah. and that you were taking the opportunity to share with them. Tell us how you interview for a role. How do you prepare when you're going to be auditioning? Well, aside from knowing your lines inside and out mm -hmm. so you don't have to rely on that piece of paper at the audition, you truly have to jump into it. You cannot second guess. You don't know what they want. You may not be right for it. Your choices may not be the right choices, but if you're committed to the role, you're committed to what you're doing, then that's all, all you can do. So you do your research, you know, you find out everything you need to know if it's a film, you know, who's directing it and, you know, who the other actors are, who your scene is going to be with, um, and, and just, just do it. Yeah. You just do it. And if you're lucky to get a callback, you try to do exactly what you did first time around, down to exactly what you wore. Because maybe it was the sweater they liked. <laughs> Who knows? Right. So you don't change also, anything. Also, if it worked the first time, keep going with keep it. Keep going with it. Yeah. And what about like any voices of doubt or conflict or any, how do you eliminate all of no, that? No, because you are so committed to the role. You are so into this character. You're mm -hmm. in the skin of this character. There is no room for anything else to come into your head because the minute you let those thoughts come in, You've lost the character, you've lost what you're doing, you've lost the moment, and they don't believe you anymore. Because if you don't believe it, they don't believe it. So that sounds like you obviously have a lot of experience, both getting roles, but then not getting roles. Yes. And, and trying to learn from that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, ha half the time you don't get the roles. Mm -hmm. And it's not because 
you didn't do a good job, but it's because maybe you were too short for the person that you're supposed to be in a scene with. Maybe you're too tall. Maybe you're too thin. Maybe you're too fat. Maybe yeah. you're, there are so many variables that you will drive yourself insane if you try to analyze those. That's why I go to auditions. I do the best that I know I'm going to do. I walk out and it's out of my mind. Mm -hmm. I don't think about it anymore. Because if I do, it'll drive me nuts. And it, it's not, a, you can't live that way. I mean, normal people apply for a job, you get an interview, you do your best, and hopefully you land the job and that's it. Mm -hmm. With actors, we've got to apply for jobs every day, twice a day, three times a day. And a lot of times we get rejected, but that reject isn't me being rejected, is I'm not appropriate for mm -hmm. this role. And I've been on the reverse side where I've directed plays and I've had to bring people to audition and brilliant people have auditioned, but I've had to say no to them because they just didn't fit the vision of what I wanted. They just didn't fit with the rest of the cast or for whatever reason. So yeah. you just don't take it personally. You've got your mental framing down. Yes, you have to, otherwise you won't survive. I think that's a persistent thing though about you as, I, as we've been talking. You've got a very strong mental frame about who you are, what you're doing, um, very direct. Well, you know why? Yeah, tell us why. <laughs> the reason is we only live once. Mm -hmm. There's no dress rehearsals in life. It's one take. This is it. So if you don't make the best of it, when you're 90 and sitting in a wheelchair, you're going to have a lot of regrets. So you better do everything you want to. Try everything. Try your best. Maybe it's not the right thing for you, but at least when you're old and you can't do these things, you're not going to say, ah, I didn't try. But the conversation with yourself is going to be, I tried. I did everything. I set my goals, and I achieved them. Yep. Well, I think we need that kind of attitude, especially in the Assyrian world, where it's easy to play the poor me story or whatever. Or... No, why poor me? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've got a lot to hold offer. Hold on, hold on. I don't <laughs> want to set you off just yet. So this would probably be a good place to transition. A lot of people say for actors and athletes, just stay in your lane. Just focus on your uh, your sport. You don't need to get involved in politics. Focus on what you do best or whatever. With you, you've definitely been involved in the Assyrian politics. And so talk to us about that. I think that when you do a variety of things that you are proficient in, then it gives you a strength that you may not have if you just want to approach something just because you feel like you should. I mean, I was an athlete also. We haven't covered that. Figure skating. Yes, figure skating. There's a discipline that goes with that. For me, it's always been whatever I love in this world, I should do, but I should do it to the best of my ability. And so being an actor has given me an ability to be a good speaker. Mm -hmm. And when the Congress thing came around, there was an opportunity there, and I seized the moment. How did that opportunity come your way? What were you feeling before it, during, and after? Before it, it was the 2003 Iraq War had started. Mm -hmm. 
I had written my book. I was already on my book tour. And my book came to the attention of, of a very big director, a Syrian. And he made it possible. He took it to Congress. And he paved the way. And he said, jump on it. And I jumped on it. But everything that I did, all the research that I did, everything was, was just me. No one in the community was willing to help. It was me and my sister. I would write, she would edit. I would write, she would edit until I got my speech into a shape that it needed to be in. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I only had 48 hours to do this. The notice came, the invitation came that I had to be in Congress. And they said, you need to turn in your speech. So it had to all be scripted. It all had to be scripted and it has to be okayed by them. And I said, well, you mean I, I have to turn it into you right now. Could you please give me 24 hours? Mm -hmm. And they extended that to me, the 24 hours. And for the next 24 hours, the clock was in front of us and it was ticking. And why were you called in to present? I saw a void. I was getting very angry that Assyrians were being dismissed. When the Iraq war started, the Assyrians were being attacked because we wore the face of Christianity and they saw U.S. attacking Iraq. And who are they going to retaliate against? The closest people are the Christians that are there because they wore the face of Christianity. But no one said that we were Assyrian. They just kept saying, you know, some, some people. They didn't even say that. In most cases, they would, wouldn't even refer to us, you know. And that was, I couldn't let us be lost in this battle. So I had to do whatever I could within my power to at least bring this to the surface. And so I made a point of, of using our name and bringing attention to what was happening to us. And that opened the door for a slew of interviews. But I made sure I had to strike a deal. If you're going to do an interview with me, you will not call me anything but Assyrian. Mm -hmm. No term is acceptable to me because I am an Assyrian. I grew up in Assyrian. And I live my life as an Assyrian, and I will die as an Assyrian. So don't paint a different picture. Don't paint a picture that I'm not. So, so message loud and clear from Rosie, if you're going to do any activism within our community or outside the community, make sure the word Assyrian is a part of what you're doing. Absolutely. Otherwise, why are you doing it? We can't please everyone. We can't be politically correct. We are a small nation. We're not massive. We don't have a country. So we better use our name. Use it as, as a brand, the Assyrian brand. Publicize the Assyrian brand. You know, enough with, you know, Christians of Iraq, Iraqi Christians, Mesopotamians, anything but Assyrian. Now we don't even use the, you know, dashes and slashes combining names. I mean, let's be realistic. We are Assyrian. And so if we're going to speak up, even if it's just for a small group of people, 
then speak up for those people. If you're an Assyrian, your duty is to Assyrians, not to the rest of the world. You're relentlessly centered on making sure we use this word, we don't abandon the word. Tell us more about why that's important to you. This is why it's important to me. When I was writing my book, I had to do a research on not just my family, but the, the, the things that occurred during 1914 to 1918. A lot of Assyrians shed blood. So how can I deny that name? These people that walked the death marches, the 70,000 Assyrians that left Urmi and walked out of Urmi to save future generations. I'm one of those future generations. I'm a person that was saved by my grandmother who walked, she actually walked from Urmi to the Russian frontier and she saved future generations. So how can I deny my Assyrian identity? If I deny it, I'm denying her. She, yeah. she gave up so much to save her future generations and she wasn't alone. All the Assyrians, all of them, regardless of what church they belong to. To me, as I said earlier, it doesn't matter which church. I will go to all of them. I will pray in all of them. And I will pray at home. My home is my church. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter. So it's tied, it's tied to your roots. And you, you feel we're doing a disservice to our own history when we don't use that word. Absolutely. Your book had come out before you went to Congress. Walk us through the research you did for it. Where did the idea come from? And what were the parts of that book that really took an emotional toll on you? Before, I, I published my book in 2005. In 2002, and four years prior to that, my mother started battling cancer. And I watched this strong woman who had been my rock slowly fading away. Now, my mom was keeper of all family stories. She knew everyone. She knew every detail. And at some point, I realized, oh, my God, when my mom's gone, all these stories are going to be gone with her. So I gave her a notebook, an empty notebook. And I said, Mom, on days that you can, if you're up to it, just jot down notes for me about your mother, about our history, about the Assyrian genocide, what you know about it through your mother. And I never bothered her after that. Now, I knew the story of my grandmother. My grandmother is the main character in the book. We had heard these stories over and over. So my mom passed away in 2002. And I had never asked her about that notebook. I was going through her things, and I found it in her dresser drawer. And it said on it, notes for my daughter. She had filled it with notes, filled it with stories. She didn't have a lot of energy to write complete stories, but it was the heading was, don't forget the one about this, don't forget the one about that, because she knew I'd be able to fill in the blanks. And sometimes some of her notes were in French, sometimes in Russian, sometimes in Assyrian. She spoke many languages, and a lot of it in English. And she filled in all the stories, the whole story. And at the end, 
there was a little scrap of paper clipped to $35. And on that paper, it said, I know one day you will write your book. When you do, here's the money. Buy me my first book. <laughs> because she used to always buy the first ticket to all my performances. So I took the next three years to research more of our family story and also research the Assyrian history. I had to make sure these two stories, the timelines match. And I had also inherited a trunk from my grandmother, my dad's mom, that was full of family history. Books, journals, war diaries. Um, a cousin had kept a journal, daily journal, from the day they left Urmi and walked towards Mesopotamia, a daily journal of all the things that he was seeing that was happening to him and to his family and to everyone. So I had all this massive amount of stuff available to me, all this research that was already done. It, it was there. It was all in the trunk. So it took me about two years to write all of this, collect everything, collect, match up history and family story. And put it all on paper. And the most difficult thing was these characters became so real to me. A lot of the scenes would come out of my dreams. So I kept a notebook under my pillow and I would dream of a scene and I would wake up and just jot it down in darkness. And the next day I had to decipher my own notes. And I was very emotionally tied to these characters. Mm -hmm. I felt them. I, I could see them. I saw their eyes. I can feel their touch. It became very real to me. And a lot of that is because of the training maybe I had as an actor. I knew how to bring these characters to life. And so it was very, very emotional. It was a very dark period of my life. I was in complete isolation. And I was just living with these characters, bringing them to life. Was it the combination of, obviously, your mom passing away and then studying this, this very vulnerable time in the Assyrian story and history? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my mom's the loss of my mom was played a very big role in it. But I couldn't leave that loss just as, as a loss. I had to make something out of it. The book was the positive that came out of these experiences. And honestly, I only wrote the book to document my grandmother's story, my family's story. It wasn't for it to go anywhere or, or become anything, mm -hmm. you know, but it, it found its own legs. Very cool. Very inspiring. The, the one of the paradoxes as I interact with you and I've learned more about you is you're this fierce, focused, directed person, self-directed, inner-directed. And of all the things that you could focus in on, you're an advocate of one of the most vulnerable pieces of Assyrian identity, which is the genocides. Yes. And so you're very much, you're the strong woman who's highlighting this very vulnerable experiences that these people. Tell us about how you hold that together. I have to keep focused. 
The Assyrian genocide is a huge, huge chapter of our history. And we have to honor it. We have to understand it. And just creating slogans like, we'll never forget, is meaningless. We'll never let it happen again. Never again. These slogans are meaningless unless we physically actually do something about it. And the Assyrian genocide is, is such a heavy subject, and it's getting sugar-coated a little bit. And I don't like that. You know, it's, it's dissolving into other people's genocide. Yes, the Armenians suffered. Yes, the Greeks suffered. But so did we. So I don't want to go chasing other nations and be part of their story. We have our own story. And my story is just one. Every Assyrian should be documenting their stories. Mm -hmm. And we have to recognize what the true story of the Assyrian genocide is. When did it begin? When did it end? Where did it happen? It didn't just happen in Ottoman Turkey. It happened also in Iran. And nobody talks about the, the losses in Iran. Urmi was devastated. At the end of, in the middle of 1918, like around March, 70,000 Assyrians left that region on foot. Mm -hmm. Not everybody survived. So if we're going to talk about the Assyrian genocide, let's just call it what it is. Let's call it Assyrian genocide and not all these other names that don't matter to, to an outsider. Look, as a writer, I choose words carefully. The word that you choose has to paint a picture. So if I don't use the word genocide and I use something else, I'm not painting the picture for you. But when someone says to you, Jewish Holocaust, Armenian genocide, Samel massacre, you know exactly what the person's talking about because pictures are being painted mm -hmm. without anyone trying to do because you have certain images you know you've you've you're programmed now you have certain images in your head but you know we're using uh, words like safe I think that's wrong we're doing a disservice to ourselves mm -hmm. an outsider and non-assyrian doesn't know what that means now we have to take an entire paragraph to explain Seifo means sword, the year of the sword. Well, why don't we just say genocide and cut to the chase? Why do we have to do things the hard way? And, and I think we are separating Assyrians when we use that term. This Western Assyrians and Eastern Assyrians, look, we speak different dialects. That's a give. I mean, it's a fact. So we don't understand each other's dialects. Why are we using words that don't mean anything in the other Assyrian dialect. I, I, I mean, I'm going to say this. I, for the longest time, didn't know what that word meant. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize what they were talking about until I put two and two together, yeah. you know. So we're doing a disservice to ourselves by doing that, and we're separating the genocide. We're not connecting Iran and Ottoman together as one genocide, mm -hmm. 1914 to 1918. It didn't just happen in 1915. We can't just say, say for 1915. That's wrong. Historically, mm -hmm. that is wrong, and I won't accept that. 
And I, I've said this a million times, and I'll continue to say it. The Assyrian genocide happened, started 1914, towards the end of 1914, and it continued through the middle of 1918. And it covered both Assyrians in Ottoman Turkey and the ones living in, in Urmi. And obviously this is something, you know, your book is all about the genocide. And yes. so you went, you went deep into this both personally, emotionally, and intellectually, historically looking at the events and wanting to capture those events and making sure Assyrian people really understand the whole thing. Absolutely. There's only one way to do something, and that's to do it the right way. You know, anything else is... When will the world be ready for either the Crimson Field or the Assyrian Genocide movie that, that rivals something like Schindler's List? It's very simple. It comes down to money. If funds can be raised, film can be made. But isn't there a story there that someone could make a lot of money off of because it, it needs to be told? Or Hollywood doesn't care about genocides. Hollywood, Hollywood productions, Hollywood people do not care about Assyrian genocide or Armenian genocide. or They don't care. It won't make money for them. They look at the bottom line. Is mm -hmm. this product going to make us a lot of money? Just like the Armenian genocide movie, it didn't make a lot of money in the box office. Oh, there's an actual Armenian genocide yeah. movie? Yeah, The Promise. And it didn't do well at the box office. Of all the stories they could have chosen, they went with a fictitious story. Mm -hmm. That was, I think, the biggest mistake. They should have used a real story. And it was just, it wasn't approached the right way. Rose, you're going to make this movie. I, <laughs> I will make this movie. Yes, I will. And I've had at least a dozen offers on it. Yeah. And I've turned them down. Because I'm not willing to give the story away. Mm -hmm. This is my story. This is our Assyrian story. And, and I want others to write their stories as well. I will one day make this. I don't know when. Yeah. But it will be done. So we've spent a lot of time with some really light questions. Yes. <laughs> I want to actually go more personal with you. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back in time and redo certain parts of your life, what, what part would be different and why? I wouldn't change a damn thing. <laughs> that one's easy then. There we go. Slam dunk for you. Slam dunk. So you've been like just loving all these different experiences. Well, you know what? I've had bad experiences and I've had good experiences. But let's say I can get on a time machine and go back and alter one, one thing. Well, the rest is going to get altered. I won't be the person I am today. So, all right, all right. Yeah. I, got, I got a more challenging one. <laughs> okay. Okay, some women find fulfillment in having a family. You did not choose that. And within our community, it's a checkbox. It's kind of expected in, in many ways. So tell us of how you've reconciled that. I think... We are each born to do a certain thing. Some women love to get married and raise a family, and God bless them. We need that. And some women have to do other things. I think everyone has a mission in life. Everyone has a role to fulfill. And once you find out what your role is in life and you go for it, then, then that's all that should be expected of you. We shouldn't all live these cookie-cutter lives. 
oh, I am a woman and I have to be married and by now I should probably have grandchildren. No, no. There are other things I want to do in life and that just wasn't the path that I chose. Doesn't mean that I won't choose that path, you know, down the line, but I chose a different path. And you wouldn't change a thing. And I wouldn't change a thing. Good. See, you're just like knocking these questions. They're like, they're, they're just lobs. Okay, here's a fun one, or I think hopefully it'll make you think a little bit harder. If the Shah of Iran never loses power, where would your story be today? I would still be out of Iran because my father was afraid of my writings. Early on, I was displaying some of the thoughts I have today. And they realized that Iran was not a place for me. So regardless of, of that history, if that were to change, I would still be out of that country. My mom never wanted us to be there. You know, she knew that that wasn't a place to, to raise her daughters. She wanted more for us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she sent me out of the country. And it was a surprise to me. I, I was just visiting my aunt in San Francisco, and I got a telegram from my dad saying, don't come home, stay. Oh, wow. And the first thing I thought, but my trunk, I want that trunk. Oh. <laughs> and my dad wrote back, don't worry, I'll send your trunk. What was your trunk? Your, it was that trunk, that, 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 my grandmother's trunk oh, that yes, had all yeah. those family documents in it. Oh, okay. I was the guardian of those documents, oh, okay. so I had to have them. Wow, your dad seems just like an amazing person. Just so much insight, caring for his daughters, giving you amazing opportunities, looking out for you. And what was most amazing about him is he was so well-connected in everything that all we had to do is say, Dad, can you make this happen? But you know what his answer was? Do it yourself. I'm not here to be your connection. Wow. And he was never, ever, ever a connection for anything. He's like, sorry, you're my daughter, but I'm not hooking you up. No, I'm not. Yeah. And I'm not. And that's why when I started ice skating, I didn't tell my father. He didn't know. I started first. And then a year later, my sister joined me in San Francisco. So we were both training. And at that time, my dad was the head of the sports organization in Iran because he was an athlete. And so that, mm -hmm. you know. And he so had won some medals, quite right? a few. He had like 60 gold and silver medals. And so he, he, was, he was a very, very famous athlete in Iran. And so we started training here and we were excelling very, 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 very fast. And so one of our coaches suggested, well, you may think about the Olympics, you know, and I that just, okay, what do we have to do? not become American citizens yet, because if we go the route of Iran, it'll be faster. We don't have to do all these smaller competitions in the States. So I wrote to the queen through the embassy, and I said, this is who I am, if you remember my family, but we want to represent Iran in figure skating. And so she, she said yes. She wasn't going to support us monetarily. She wasn't going to support us in any way, but she would make things possible. So we, we tra seriously trained. And the next thing you know, somebody goes to my father and he says, 
These two Malik Yonan women in, in San Francisco, they're, they're going to represent Iran in figure skating. Do you know them? He says, what women? Well, one is Rosie. The other one is Monica. These are my daughters. <laughs> my dad was furious. He calls. He says, have you been neglecting your studies? Or I said, no, no. We're just, why didn't you tell me? Well, because you said do it on your own. Mm-hmm. So I, I know he was very proud. He was extremely proud of it. But we did it on our own. Unfortunately, Iran never signed up to become part of all of that. The uh, revolution in Iran started. The um, Mullahs took over. The family, the royal family, left Iran. And we used to go on a regular basis to the Iranian consulate in San Francisco to meet and if there were messages or, you know, we would give them an update or where, where we were in our progress. And suddenly this, this man who used to be so cordial summons us there and he's all buttoned up and he says, and we, we couldn't even sit. We had to stand in front of him this time. And he said, you're female Christians skating to music. These are all against the new government. You can continue with your Olympic dreams, but you have to cover up not use music, and become Muslim. So you said, where do I sign up? And no, I I actually (laughs) took my Persian passport and I threw it in the trash can and I walked out. I said, no, no. And have you been back to Iran since? No, never. Iran is dead to me. I'm not Iranian. And that's one of the biggest battles I've had, for example, like with Wikipedia, trying to prove that I am a Syrian. I am an Assyrian. Well, mm-hmm. you don't have a country. You were born in that country, so you're Iran. No, I'm not Iranian. Yeah. I gave up that citizenship. I gave up that passport a long time ago. I walked away from that. It just happened to be the country I was born in. Yeah. That doesn't make me Iranian. I'd love for you to answer the question, what does it even mean to be an Assyrian? For so many people, that question is tie- tied up into having a piece of land that's called Assyria. Being Assyrian does not tie you to land. I'm no less Assyrian than someone that's living, let's say, in the Nineveh plain. They're not more Assyrian than I am. I'm just as much Assyrian. I know my culture. I know my history. I know my language. I keep all of those things I practice those things every single day. They're part of who I am. So having land or not having land should not matter. But of course, it is better to have land to say this is Assyria. Now the practicality of that, making that happen, that's a whole other discussion. Mm -hmm. But whether we have it or don't have it, Actually, if we don't live there and we live in the West, we have a bigger responsibility. In Iran, we were not allowed to mingle with the Persians. At least my family was in a lot of families I knew. We kept within our own community. Here, we don't have that. So we're losing our young kids. They're kind of slipping away. But that's up to parents. You teach them Assyrian from, from the day they're born. You, you teach them the Assyrian way. And 
not to, you know, don't confuse this with, oh, we have to just stick to our own. No, we have to integrate. We have to be able to live in a society that's not all Assyrian. But we cannot forget who at home, we are who we are. And we can still live in the outside, but we've got to balance this. And that's what's missing. That's what's missing in today's homes. People are not teaching their children to be Assyrians. They're letting that slip away. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's on them. It has nothing to do with having property or not. I appreciate that perspective. It helps us ground ourselves beyond a physical homeland uh, in our Assyrian identity. And yeah, that's, that's been a constant theme as we've interviewed people with Assyrian podcast is thinking beyond physical land, but also thinking about the land as well. So what do people, what don't people know about Rosie Malakionin? I'm an open book, really. I, I don't have any great big secrets. I, I really am an open book. I live my life simply. I do all the things I love to do, and I, there, there really isn't anything that I can say, oh, people don't know these secrets. No. The thing that pops out, resonate, really resonates with me, is though you've got this mom who's Catholic, his dad who's Presbyterian, this dad who's super intelligent and strict and play by the rules, but you've got this mom who's like, I'm going to put her in piano classes, dancing, what, whatever, you didn't come out where you're like against one or the other or firmly in one camp. You seem to be very much just enjoying all of life. Yeah, it's better to enjoy all of it than half of it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, we, I think as an Assyrian community, it's so good to, to hear that and to learn from you with that because it probably is what has contributed to all of your success throughout the years. Yeah, I mean, why draw lines in the sand? when you can just enjoy all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, I want to fire off some other questions. What was it like to be on Seinfeld? <laughs> I had a, a fever of 101. Oh, no. I was so sick with a migraine that was just pounding, pounding, pounding. And the big scene, which was the punchline, wasn't working Uh-oh. because they had made me look too pretty. And Seinfeld kept saying, you know, they're not laughing. This isn't working because I opened the door and he mistakes me for the maid. And, but I, I looked too pretty. I was all done up. And, and so finally I said, give me two minutes. He said, where are you going? I said, two minutes. I went to the bathroom. I washed everything off. I messed up my hair, put a little thing on my head covered my hair and put on rubber gloves and I came back oh. and the scene worked <laughs> oh that's so cool <laughs> that's so cool and then days of our lives like every Assyrian my mom used to make me record days of our lives for her, <laughs> you know so that must have been a pretty big deal to be on there yeah I mean to me it was just work yeah it was you know you go to work and I I I've done quite a few episodes. I used to be an American nurse at one point. Then I became a Greek nurse with Jeannie Francis when she was on the show. You know, soaps, they're really good training ground. And once you get your foot through the door, if, if you just do it right, 
you get into the other ones, mm-hmm. you know. So I got into that general hospitals. Yeah. Thing. Well, what for, for soaps is after that's yet another union to get into. Yeah. And then there's uh, equity actors equity that's for stage. So you got to get into all these unions, but you know it's this is it's, good top secret info about yeah. the Hollywood world. <laughs> Terrence Malick, are you related to Terrence Malick? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. Yes. Cool. He's a he's a distant cousin. Yeah. And but I've never asked him for help in in the acting world. Yeah. Um because I'm too I don't know, maybe stubborn that I need to do things on my own. You do it yourself. I do it myself. I claim my victories and I claim my failures and I learn from them and I move on. Mm-hmm. Folks, I've heard of Terrence Malick and the movies he's made and we thought maybe you were related and now we know yeah and that's where i remember i started saying that you know we some of us spell our last names differently i'm m-a-l-e-k he's m-a-l-i-c-k his branch is a little spells it different than my branch but you know there we're all the root of the same family very cool one of the things in closing we ask anyone who's on the assyrian podcast is uh, if you can say one thing to all the Assyrians all over the world, we def- we have listeners from everywhere who listen to the Assyrian podcast, what do you want to say to them? I would say be proud of who you are. Be proud of your Assyrian heritage. Be proud of the Assyrian name. Don't shy away from it. Don't run away from it. Don't be politically correct. Be yourself, be real, and be hopeful. Love it. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, and I hope we can do some more projects or do another interview down the line. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I totally enjoyed it. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to everybody for listening to this episode in its entirety. We appreciate you all. A reminder that if you have not subscribed yet to the podcast, you can do so using pretty much any podcast app on your smartphone. Also, check out AssyrianPodcast.com. There's a list of the more recent episodes up there for you if you need some catching up to do. And you can also read more about the team. As always, we do this because of you, for you, and we appreciate all the support and all the listens week in, week out. And we'll be back next week with more good Assyrian Podcast content.